It's not so much that we're going to go through the book of James together. It's going to go through us. It's going to move through us in a way that we will not be the same when we finish. And those of you, many of you in this room have participated in summer Bible studies before, and you know how it transforms us. But I am equally, always equally excited if this is the first time you've ever taken one of the summer studies with us, this is your first time to walk in the doors of Renovation Church. We welcome you. We are thrilled you're here. One of the things that we love the most is to see all ladies of this community, um, some a little further north even have come, some a little further south, but um, nothing like sitting together and learning together and sharing together and um, having God do some incredible things in our lives. So let's pray together, and then we're going to let this book begin to tear us up. Heavenly Father, I, you know, just mercy and grace. Grace that we're here. Mercy that you love us. Your grace that we, that we live and we breathe in. And that God, that, you know, day to day to day, and you bring us back again together so that we can learn more of who you are, love you deeper. And God, more than ever, I pray that um, we'll learn how to love like you do. And we'll learn how to show mercy like you do. And we'll learn how to be vessels of grace like you are. And how transforming that is to such a dry world that does not, doesn't, doesn't know that, doesn't know divine grace, doesn't know divine mercy. So God, tonight I just ask your Holy Spirit to come. He is here to do miraculous work, to teach us, to show us, to thrill us, to convict us to bond us all together, to deepen our roots so that we can burst above the soil and be just, as Isaiah talks about, just mighty oaks of righteousness for you. God, not, not just for the display of another Bible study, but for the display of your splendor and the display of your glory and the display of your mercy and a display of your grace. Thank you for bringing us, literally tugging on our hearts this summer and bringing us all back together. Thank you for just paving the way of probably a very busy day for so many of us, bringing us, bringing us here. God, I, I pray that you give us teachable hearts. Truly, truly humble, teachable hearts to receive your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to start our uh, study tonight. If you've got your workbooks, go ahead and turn to page 12 and 12, 13. Each week, um, after you conclude your time of weekly study, when you come here on Wednesday nights, we'll, we'll be going through this uh, viewing God, the teaching God, and you'll be filling in the blanks. There, the um, screens will have the answers printed up above to my left and to my right. 
So that will go up on the screen week to week to week. Um, some of you do know, some of you may not know, we're going to have the great surprise and great thrill of we'll break down into small groups after I finish the message. And uh, we'll go through that as soon as we conclude the message and we'll get you divided up. Your name tags each have, um, the, I think it's the last name, I don't know if we did last name or first name, last name of your leader. And we'll get you broken down into small groups and we'll get into that dynamic as well. So we have a lot of great things going on and uh, we have a fabulous uh, eight weeks together, eight Wednesdays, seven weeks of study, eight Wednesday nights. Tonight we're going to start learning um, with the person of James, but we're not going to go immediately. We will not be jumping into the book of James tonight. Um, we are going to be looking in scripture at some of the very, and there's just very few places where we are going to learn a little bit about the person of James. We want to know where he appears in the New Testament, who is he, and what can we learn about him that really adds such an incredible dynamic to learning and reading through and studying the entire book of James. So tonight we're going to start our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you'll take your Bibles, if you, if you brought that with you, fantastic. In the, in the New Testament, you'll go to 1 Corinthians. We also have Bibles up here on each one of these little podiums on, up here. You're welcome to them. If you don't have one, please take them, use them. Um, I want you to know that when you come to Renovation Church for any kind of Bible study, anytime these doors are open and the Bible is open, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God that we believe it is truth from cover to cover, that it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is God-breathed, it is living, it is active, and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. So we believe it to be true. It is the authority over our lives. And we believe that the Holy Spirit teaches us that he is here, he is present, and he is the one who will take these words and he will transform our lives with them. So as you turn to 1 Corinthians, I want you to go to the 15th chapter. We're going to be taking a look at the, the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 8. I will read those, and then we're going to begin this amazing journey together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. <clears throat> now, brothers... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Now, what I want you to know is the I, the person who is, has been inspired to write this, is the Apostle Paul. This is Paul writing this letter. So he, is, he, he wants to remind, he's, been, he's writing this to the church in Corinth. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, 
And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. It's important for us to know exactly when this, the context, what exactly is, uh, what's the time frame that Paul's writing about. And what Paul is talking about here is obviously after Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected. Now we know that Jesus appeared on earth in physical bodily form after he was raised from the dead for 40 days. After that, he ascended, went back up to heaven to sit with his father. This is Paul, he is, he is describing those particular, some of those events. Now it's described in other places in the New Testament. But for our consideration and what's important to us is, is what we saw in verse 7. And that is the recording that Jesus also appeared to James. And it is scholars just almost 100% because of the way it's written, James and then the apostles. Were the, the, who were the apostles? Were the, the apostles were, were Jesus' disciples. One of the things you need to know, and as we kind of travel through this, you'll understand this, James, the James that we will be studying, the book that we're going to spend seven more weeks together, he was not one of the 12 disciples. There, was there a disciple named James? Yes, there was. You know, it's one of those things where we see a lot of James, but this one was not one of the disciples. The James that we are interested in and the James that wrote the book of James was Jesus' half-brother. And as I said, scholars believe in this text that this is a direct reference to Jesus' half-brother, James. And this is so very significant to us. Your first fill-in-the-blank, as we see from Scripture, verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, is that then he appeared, meaning Jesus, after he has been crucified. Now, can you imagine? Now, don't lose this. Just please don't lose this, because, you know, even if you've been doing Bible study, we know Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected. Just, I want you to think about the appearances that he made, this is fresh on their hearts. It's only been within this 40-day time frame witnessing Jesus being crucified, buried in a tomb, dead, and resurrected, brought to life. And he is walking in bodily form, that's, that's important, bodily form on the earth, and he is appearing... Very specifically, Scripture will say, using names of specific people. Now, it says that he appeared to 500 of the brothers. But it also names Peter. It names James. And then Paul will also speak of a time when Jesus uh, appeared to him as well. He did not appear to Paul within those 40 days. Not Paul, but to James. And as we see in this text, we have to kind of ask the question, perhaps, you know, what is significant? You know, if we're reading through Scripture, oftentimes I'll just say, why? And that's a good question to always ask. You're not always going to get the answer. I don't, I don't always get the answers when I ask why when I'm reading through Scripture. But when we see this, it's logical to say, well, why did, why is it specifically mentioned? Why did he, why did Jesus specifically appear to Peter? Why would he specifically appear to James? 
Why does he specifically appear to the, the 12? And it's, although, of course, Judas is no longer part of the 12, but it's referred to, the group was still referred to as the 12, to those 11 disciples. Why? We have to ask the question, why? And as we kind of delve into this a little deeper, you can go ahead and fill that first uh, statement in, that Jesus appeared to those who needed to see him the most. All right, now let's, let's think about that a minute. Not only do we have in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we also have an account, and you can turn there if you want to. It's not listed on your, on your guide. But in John chapter 20, one of the first people that Jesus appeared to was a woman, and her name was Mary. You remember the scene, perhaps. John chapter 20, Jesus appears specifically to Mary. If you don't know anything about her, we know from Scripture that she went to the tomb and she was extremely distraught. The Scriptures use words very strong of her emotion. I mean, she was weeping, she was wailing, she was distraught. She was a, a very, very emotional scene that she was going to the tomb that morning. And we see the encounter of the living Jesus appearing to her. Now, Mary had been delivered from seven demons. Can I just say that one more time? Because that's not just a, huh. She was delivered from seven demons. And we don't know a lot of her story. We don't know a lot of detail in Scripture about her. But we do know other accounts of demon-possessed people that Jesus cast demons out of. And they are horrendous stories. There's one in the book of Mark that describes a man who was literally had to be chained because he was just so violent. And it describes that chains couldn't hold him. And that he spent so much, he was abusive, and that he would take stones and cut himself. Can you imagine the picture of that? Can you imagine the torment of that? Can you imagine the public outrage of that? Not knowing what to do with them. And almost an untouchable situation. A broken person, no one, an impossible situation that no one could help. And just the stigma placed on someone like that. They were unclean. They were not touched. They could not be helped. And this woman, Mary, she had been delivered from, from seven demons. No wonder, no wonder she was at the tomb, searching for the one who had given her back her life, searching for the one who had given her dignity, searching for the one who had given her significance, Searching for the one who at the tomb, get this, spoke her name. And maybe that doesn't just blow us away at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I wonder if anybody even knew her name. She's just a demon-possessed woman. Just that woman. Maybe they didn't even know her name. Didn't care to know her name. Never spoke her name. I mean, no one ever went to touch her. No wonder, no wonder she was at the tomb looking for him. Maybe she felt like he's the only one that ever had cared about her. And there he is appearing to her. 
and speaking her name. I think we begin to understand a little bit deeper about why and who. And, I, and you know, we don't have a lot of detail there. But there had to be a reason. And I just believe that per, very personal encounter when she knew that, no, he was not physically with her. He was not physically with her. He would be leaving her. But that she knew that she had seen and experienced a risen Christ. And she did not have to go back where she came from. Do you not see mercy? Do you not feel the grace of that? Amazing, amazing picture. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we also have that uh, Jesus appeared to Peter. This reference in 1 Corinthians is not the reference that you might be familiar with when the disciples went back to the Sea of Galilee and we, we think of that as Peter's public reinstatement. Now, what in the world? What had Peter done? Let's, ta- let's think a minute. If we know anything about Peter, we're probably going to attach a label to him, aren't we? Aren't we? We get to attach a label. And we're probably going to say, oh, he's the one that denied Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Even we, 2,000 years later, we've got a label that we're going to put on Peter, and that's the characteristic that we're going to put him with that he denied Jesus. And on the night that Jesus was crucified, if you are not familiar with that in the text through the Gospels, Peter had followed very closely behind Jesus when he was arrested out of the Garden of Gethsemane. And they were, when Jesus was taken to Caiaphas's house, the high priest to be questioned through the night, remember Peter kind of hung out on the courtyard and the, uh, it says that a servant girl came up and asked him. She recognized how he talked, kind of like if he was from the south. He, she knew, because of course he was in Jerusalem, she knew that the way he spoke was somewhere around the area of Galilee, northern territory. So she knew that he might be connected to Jesus. So she asked him how many times? Three times. And all three times he says, I don't, I don't even know the man. If you don't know, Peter had just spent three years of his life, day in and day out with Jesus. And in the gospel account of Luke, there is a startling verse. And it says, after this transaction had taken place, and we have to understand, Jesus is being moved about through the night. The high priest, he'd been beaten, he'd been slapped, he'd already been spit on. And there is one verse that Luke mentions as Jesus is being taken across that courtyard It says that Jesus looked straight at Peter, straight at him. Could it get any more intense than that? And 1 Corinthians says that Jesus appeared after he was resurrected from the dead. Sometime during that 40-day period, he had a private encounter with Peter. Yes, he would reinstate him at the Sea of Galilee when all of the disciples were there. It was a public. But can you imagine when Peter locked eyes again with the risen Christ? The third encounter that we see in 1 Corinthians is Paul. Now, Paul, if you know anything about his background, Paul might be considered... Before he encountered Jesus, he was, um, he was an enemy 
of Jesus. He was an enemy of the church. The church had just been born. And he decided that he was uh, going to take care of all of those um, people, all of those believers, men, women, and children, who had determined that they were going to give their life to Jesus Christ. And on his way from Jerusalem north towards Damascus, having letters in his pocket giving him permission to arrest the followers of the way. I mean, he was ready to wipe them out. And I don't mean, I mean no mercy. No mercy. Paul, very, very zealous man, passionate man. And at that point in his life, prior to meeting the resurrected Christ, he was ready to wipe out the way meaning those followers of Jesus Christ, showing no mercy, showing no mercy. And we know that Jesus met him many, many times through the New Testament. There are so many details about Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the, the conversion when he saw Christ and he believed him. And then he, uh, his zealousness took one direction from one direction to the next just a complete turnaround, complete. And then the fourth, the fourth is James. We're going to look a little bit deeper, but I want you to think about the three. Mary, I want you to think about Peter, the denier, and then Paul, the persecutor, the enemy. And I'm just going to toss a question. I'm not going to answer I just want you to think about it in human terms. In human terms, what do you think they thought they deserved? I just want you to think about that. What do you think they thought they deserved? Now, we know the answer in Scripture, but I just want you to put yourself in that place. What do you think they thought they deserved? All right, now let's take a look at James. This is where it's going to get very interesting and uh, we're going to look in John chapter 7. Go back to the Gospel of John in verse 7. We'll look at the first nine verses. Because there's just very, uh, there's just two. There's really two places that we get a glimpse of James prior to the crucifixion of his, of his half-brother. In John chapter 7... I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and we're going to begin to look at a profile. We want to begin to get some information and put this thing together. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> After this, now, of course, we backed up in time. Jesus is alive on earth. We're, we're back to his ministry. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to, go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. All right, let's break that down just a little bit. Let's just see what's going on here. When it says in, in the first verse that Jesus went around Galilee, that is the northern area of Israel, 
up above Jerusalem. The feast that it's speaking of here took place in Jerusalem. You would have to travel by foot to Jerusalem to participate. Where did Jesus spend most of his public ministry? Up around that area of Galilee. That's where we see in the Gospels the healings taking place, the demons being cast out. Yes, Jesus would travel a few times back and forth from Jerusalem, but for three years primarily he was around that area of Galilee. Where was Jesus? Where did he grow up? In a little place called Nazareth, not too far from the little Sea of Galilee, where his brothers, he grew up with his brothers. So what we see in this text, and I love how this really has a very sharp dividing point to me, because as I, even as I read it and looked at this, and it says, um, verse 3, this direct quote from the, it's almost like they banded together, and you're going to do some research in your homework this week. Jesus had four half-brothers. All right, now, the good question is, why do you keep saying half-brothers? Why do I keep saying that? Well, this is why I keep saying that. Because Jesus' father is God. Remember, Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was born Mary, who was a virgin. So, earthly mother Mary, heavenly father God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's big theology right there. That's just it. But Mary and Joseph had other children together. They had other children. Matthew describes that. There were four brothers. There were four blood brothers between Joseph and Mary. And then there's a tagline that says he had some sisters. Now, I'd like to know about them because I grew up with a bunch of brothers. So I would love to know that, but we don't know. We don't know that. It just simply says in Matthew that there were four brothers. They're given names. And James is always listed first. And in ancient writings, even when you talk about probably your brothers and sisters, if, it's, if, you're, if you have other brothers and sisters, I usually list them by age order. That's just normal. So James is always listed first. So we can assume that James was the oldest of the brothers. And then when we see this text and it says the brothers said, I just, I think that's amazing because I just believe all four of them together. And then there's, there's Jesus. And they, you know, whatever kind of personality and whatever kind of thoughts we might want to have, they had collectively come to this conclusion about their half-brother, the one that they had grown up with in this tiny little place called Nazareth that maybe had 20 families, maybe. Growing up together in the same family, very close-knit, and they had watched him grow up. And at this point, at age when Jesus went public ministry down away from home, performing these amazing miracles, casting out demons, what does it say? What does scripture say? They did not believe him. They did not believe him. And when I say his own family, you know what I mean. I mean, I, we've, we've, we've cleared that with they're not blood. Father, God, the others fathered by Joseph. But still, these are his brothers. Don't you think there was a special kind of relationship with those brothers? And here we have in the text of John, there's almost a kind of a vengeance here. There's kind of a skepticism here. 
There's an unbelief here. And what they're saying is there's a mock, there's like a mockery. Well, then go show yourself at the Feast of... In other words, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was occurring in Jerusalem, high-pitched, high-pitched emotion because they were waiting for the Messiah to come and all of the miracles that Jesus was performing was pointing towards a lot of talk and a lot of uh, discussion that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, of course, we know that the Messiah that they thought they wanted was the Messiah that would deliver them from Roman occupation. And so that's where we see this kind of, in, we see this conflict. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not a public figure. He's a personal savior. He didn't come to be a public figure. He came to be a personal savior. He says, my timing, the time is not right. What they were asking him to do was not right. He says, you ought to leave here and you go to Judea so that your disciples, which puts a definite, defining, dividing mark. They're saying, we are not your disciples. You see that? The brothers were saying, we are not. Take your disciples and go. And the disciples were simply learners. Jesus was considered a teacher, a rabbi. And those disciples were following him. In that time and in that culture, a disciple wanted to be their rabbi. They wanted to be, think like him, interpret law like him. And the brothers are clearly saying, take your disciples. In other words, we are not part of that. Go and show yourself. It's almost like, go and show yourself and then we'll think about it. A mockery, an unbelief. And um, we also have a second quote. If you're looking, you're in chapter 7, go back, look at John 6. We can see another um, instance or we can see part of, what they're, part of what was so upsetting to them in John chapter 6, verse um, 60, and 60, 60 through 66, we see that on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus began, when, he, when Jesus was performing miracles, casting out demons, feeding thousands miraculously, can I just say that that's easy? I mean, not, you know, not what Jesus was doing. It's just, you know, you kind of get into the crowd of it all. And the healings, miraculous healings, marvelous things going on. But then Jesus began to teach hard things. And then Jesus began to teach things like the confession of sin, the repentance of sin. He began to talk about following him at the cost of your life. Very difficult things began to follow. And what we see in Scripture is it goes on to say in verse 61, aware of that, his disciples even were grumbling about this. I mean, they began to think about it. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet, they are some, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you see kind of the atmosphere of what was going on? As Jesus began to teach hard things, even the, some of the disciples, the followed. Now, not the twelve. 
we want to consider that there were many following, but as Jesus began to teach more and more difficult things, things that would cost them, cost people things, not material things, but cost them uh, giving up, removing a seriousness about what he was, many just began to fall away. And he wasn't, didn't, you know, he wasn't going to go to Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government. And they began to fall away. When he didn't become what they wanted him to become, they began to fall away. So we see a taste, a little bit of what was happening. The only other direct quote from Christ's collective natural family is found in the book of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 3. You should go, keep going left. You're going to find Mark chapter 3, verse 21. In Mark 3, very quick verse, very telling verse. We have another crowd that has gathered. I'm going to go back to verse 20 just so you can kind of see what's going on here. Again, this is in around the area of Galilee. Jesus enters a house. This is verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Verse 21. When I, this is... I, this, this is just almost puts a, a smile on my face. I just Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. <laughs> Can you imagine the picture? This, our brother is outrageous. We're just going to go take charge of him. Now, how many family encounters have we had that going on? We're just going to go take, we're going to get together, brothers and sisters, aunt, whatever, and we're just going to go take charge of this event. So somehow or another, again, I picture the brothers, the four of them, we're going we're gonna to get this thing under control. We're going to get this outrageous brother of ours in control. So the whole family, the family heard about this, and they went to take charge of him, for they said, now this is their conclusion, this is why they're going to take charge of him. What does it say? Because he is out of his mind. Now... I think we have a good, pretty good picture about Big Brother James, don't we? Not that he's older than, he's not older than Jesus, the big brother of the next group, of the three, and then the sisters. Skeptical, unbelieving, mocking, believing that his brother, his half-brother, is out of his mind. Do you think maybe a little bit embarrassed? Just a little bit outrageous. I mean, I think we can put a whole lot of, maybe even a little bit ashamed of the family. We just don't know. We're not sure, but I think we can take a look at that and we can kind of get the family dynamic. And I'm thinking about like family members are going, they are out of their mind. We have got to take charge of them. I mean, think of the family dynamic going on as they watch Jesus begin to do things that are just revolutionary speaking things that are just seem crazy, things that will ultimately, and I really believe there's a bottom line fear, because if Jesus was saying, if they believed him to be true, he was headed down a very, very dangerous path, because he was coming up against the uh, religious re elite in Jerusalem, he was coming up against the world, literally, in what he was talking about, loving your enemies, the teaching, can you think of all that Jesus began to teach and all that he began to say and, you know, about outward things, more about the inward heart? I mean, they knew. I think deep down inside when we begin to go, they're out of their mind or we don't believe. I believe that there was a fear. 
I think there was some fear instilled in there. And they think, maybe we'll just get him out of here. We'll get him back to Nazareth, get him to some goats, get him back to the carpenter's tape. Maybe, maybe he'll stop this. If they wanted to grab a hold of him and take charge of him. So point number two is this. From these accounts of John and from Mark, James enters the scene as an unbeliever. I think there's a lot of hope there. And I want to ask you the same question to think about. Mary, Peter, and Paul specifically that Jesus appeared to, and because of their past, I asked you, what do you think they thought they deserved? And I want you to think about the same question with James. What do you think he thought he deserved? After we've seen, and we can stand back 2,000 years later and go, look at his behavior. Look what he said. What do you think he thought he deserved? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that Jesus appeared to James. And most scholars and theologians will agree that the James, that encounter, now James certainly knew of the crucifixion, certainly knew of the resurrection. We don't have any specific count, account before then that James believed. Was his, and it's a, it's a question mark, it's not written in stone, it's not in permanent ink, but most scholars will believe that when Jesus appeared to James after he was resurrected, and he specifically appeared to him, that that's when James believed. That that is when he was born again. That he became a believer. What an amazing story. What an amazing thought. What an amazing account, encounter. And you can say, well, what happened? I want to know. Well, sometimes in Scripture, it's just none of our business. And we don't know. We don't know what happened. We don't know what was spoken. But I love just the thought of it. I love the picture of that, that Jesus would specifically go to his half-brother James, the one who had mocked him, the one who wanted the family to take him away, the one who thought he was out of his mind. We don't know how long, we just, we don't know the, we don't know enough of that. And yet Jesus appeared to him. The hope that I find in that, as we think about the four that specifically that we talked about that Jesus encountered, is as you think about where you are right now in your own family. Maybe where you were. Maybe where I was. Skeptical. Unbelieving. Denying. Enemy. Persecuting the church. You know, just kind of bad-mouthing, Whatever. And we all have all of that, perhaps, that dynamics within our own family. Maybe, maybe immediate family. Maybe stretched out family in our natural families. But I think the hope that we see here and the prayer that I want you to, you know, maybe you're right in the midst of prayer over a family member right now. Someone who just is skeptical 
Maybe somebody who once was very close and is now denying who he is. Maybe just kind of just moved on in life. Just maybe something tough has happened. Just, just you know, just the church thing. Just don't want to, you know, doesn't want to have any part of that. Maybe the one who is just the, literally an enemy. You feel, like it's just, you feel like in your own family and it's just an enemy because of what you believe. Maybe something like the demon-possessed woman. Maybe an, an impossible situation in your family. And what I want you to do is just keep on persevering in prayer. It's the Holy Spirit to appear to them. This is the hope that we have, looking at all four of them. The unbeliever, the skeptic, the denier, the impossible situation. The resurrected Christ to meet them. Point number three, we're going to work, look at uh, pretty briefly. But one of the things that, that Jesus began to do and began to teach and that we see in the New Testament is almost a reconstruction of the idea of family. This is point number three. Jesus radically reconstructs the idea of family. Now, what in the world does that mean? What it means is that in the New Testament, there seems to be a progression of a restructuring of family. And at first that might seem, well, why is that even important? And that's a great question. But it becomes very important because when you look into the Old Testament, blood lineage was everything, Right? If you were born a Hebrew, then you were considered in the family a people of God. After Christ paid the penalty for our sins, it's no, and this is going to be a big issue for you guys this week in your homework. I can't wait for you to get a hold of it. Cannot wait for you to get a hold of the first week of homework. Because this becomes, this is a big issue. Because in the Old Testament, if you were a blood lineage, literally blood lineage through the Hebrew people, you were considered to be, well, I'll use the family of God, that you were considered to be um, people of God. Now, we know this side of the cross, and there may be some blood, some Hebrew blood in here. I don't know. I certainly do not have that tracing back until you get, you know, all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way back. But what we're looking at is on this side of the cross that you did not have to have the blood lineage. This is important because keep James, James, I want you to whirl that around in your mind. You did not have to, obviously to become a believer in Christ, you didn't have to have a blood lineage through the Hebrew nation. You believed in Christ and by grace you're saved. And then you become part of the family of God, the spiritual family of God. This to our ears is normal. To the Jewish mind, it blew them away. They could not, you're going to read about the controversy of that this week and how James fit into that controversy because there were many that believed that you had to become a Hebrew, that you had to take on the Jewish culture, who the Jewish people were before you could be saved, before you could be considered a part of the family of God, a huge con. To us, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. In those early years, it was. And James found himself right in the middle of the controversy. 
And you're going to see a man who was extended great mercy by his half-brother as he leads those questions. You'll be studying about that this week in Scripture, and I want you to stick with it. You've got to stick with that, this portion of homework this first week. Just keep persevering through it. But Jesus began to reconstruct the family, kind of get, just revolutionize this whole thought of family. And as you fill in the blank, we're going to look at it pretty quickly, that this seems to be the progression. This, this is what happens. There's a natural family. If we think about Jesus and his, his brothers and sisters growing up, there's a natural family. Joseph, Mary, brothers, sisters growing up in um, Nazareth together. The next progression, we're going to look at these scriptures pretty quickly. In John chapter 2, verse 12, this is the account of the miracle in Cana. In John chapter 2, verse 12, we read, After this, this is Jesus, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So we now see that traveling along with and in this group that belongs to Jesus, we see his natural family, and then there the disciples have joined him. These are not his family, natural family members. They are his followers, his disciples. From there in Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35, we begin to see another change taking place. So we have the natural family that progresses, progresses to the family plus disciples, and then we have the disciples from Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35, we see another account another progression of this new spiritual family. Verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, sent somebody in to call Jesus. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus asked this question. He says, Who are my brother? Who are my brother? Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what's happening? And what we can understand, although Mary certainly had a great picture, we know the skepticism of the brothers, but what we see is almost this progression and transformation being taken place from natural family to family plus the disciples. Then we have disciples Minus the family. It's almost like they're on the outside. In fact, we know there's some really difficult teaching when Jesus talks about hating your, your mother, hating your father. And he wasn't, obviously we love them. He's just talking about prioritizing now. He's looking at prioritizing him, prioritizing God first in comparison to. So there's this restructuring taking on. In John chapter 19, we see another transition taking place. In John 19, verse 25 through 27. This is, um, Jesus is, he's on the cross. Um, this, is a, this is the encounter. Mary, his mother, is right at the cross, verse 25 says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved, very interesting because we don't see his natural brothers there. 
it's, it's his disciples, his mother, standing nearby. He said to his mother, it says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, now we know that's John, that's, the, that's not a, a natural family member. John was not a natural family. He was one of the disciples. Saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And this is almost considered almost like a last will and testament. Jesus is saying, John, you are to take care of my mother. And he says this, calling John her son. To us in the church, maybe, maybe not familiar to you, we consider the church a family. We consider it a reconstruction of the family. Where we have brothers, we, we say the term all the time, brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul used to, uh, in Scripture, it talks about Timothy. Timothy was not his natural-born son. But we see the phrase again and again, my true son, my true son. There is something about when Jesus Christ comes and invades our lives, and we are uh, in that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in us, there is a new family bond that is created. And I pray that's one of the things that even in our eight weeks together, that you, your small group, this large group, we are family members as believers in Christ. It's an amazing thing. And maybe in the dynamic of your own natural family, you have that going on where you have your natural family. If you don't, some of them are not believers. But then you have friends in church and they are like your blood. They're, they're, you would almost say they're closer than. They're your, they're your sisters. They're your mothers. They're your daughters in Christ. There's a, been a complete restructuring. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. Does that toss out the natural family? Absolutely not. If there's anything greater that burns in us, it's for our entire natural family to become followers of Christ. Now, what happens in the book of Acts as we turn over into Acts chapter 1, this progression as we have seen, we followed the life of James as best we can through the Gospels. We've seen a little bit of the account through John, through Mark, and back to John with, with uh, Mary being given over to the care of John. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, this is um, after Jesus has been ascended back to heaven, in verse 12, Acts chapter 1, the account reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem. This is the followers. This is the disciples from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present, now this next list, these are the disciples. All right? Who are the disciples? Are they natural family? No, they are not natural family. These are the ones who have... Um, have followed Christ. They have been with him for those three years. The list is there. Peter, John, James. Now, is that his brother? No. That's James the disciple. This is not the James that we're, that we're concentrating on. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. See, I told you there's a lot of James. But still, those two are not the James we're talking about. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who else? Don't you just love it? 
Don't you just love it? Jesus, it's, the 40 days have gone by. Jesus has gone back to sit at the right hand of the Father. They are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And what we have specifically in Scripture, we know without the detail being there, we know now Mary is present with the believers. And who else? Four skeptical, mocking, unbelieving, take my brother away, he's out of his mind, brothers. And there they are. How great is the grace and the mercy of God. How great. What do you think Mary, Peter, Paul, James, the brothers, what do you think they thought they deserved? I love that question. I love that question. Because we could come up the justice of what they deserved. But what God did was pour grace and mercy all over them. We're in for it this summer. Do you hear me? We are in for it this summer. We're going to see mercy and grace everywhere. If that does if you do not attend one more Wednesday night, which you better, I'm telling you, you better. But if you do not, the grace and the mercy of God, because you see, I can ask the same, what do I think I deserve? When I look at who I am, where I have been, what I have done, the decisions I have made, what do I deserve? I can tell you the justice, but I'm going to tell you right behind it came the grace and the mercy of God. Right behind it. No one is outside the mercy and the grace of God. And it is our responsibility as those who have been covered by the grace and the mercy of God. The scripture says you see to it that nobody misses that. You see to it that no one misses the grace of God. This book is going to rip right through us, Karen Elliott, isn't it? It's going to rip right through us. It's going to tear right through. Amazing that we get to see James, and now he's going to write this book that is going to challenge the pants off of us. Isn't it, Caroline Anderson? It is. It is. If you've studied the book of James before, fantastic. If you never have, fantastic. I'm going to tell you something. This is a book you go back to again and again and again and again and again. It's so practical. It's so practical. It's amazing. It's amazing. Let's finish this thing up so we can get on to small group. I can just go on forever, can I? <laughs> All right, first, and I'm not. First Corinthians 15. We're going to conclude. We're going to conclude. It's 7.30 on the dot. First, have mercy on me first night. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians verse 9 and 10. This is just finishing up where we started. We're just going to pick up where we were when we started out this thing an hour ago. Verse 9 and 10. Now remember, this is Paul speaking. For I am the least of the apostles 
and do not even deserve. Gosh, if we can just kind of start linking up the concept of grace, mercy, deserve. Grace, mercy, deserve. The difference between. See, Paul's saying, for I'm the least of the apostles and do not deserve. We know why he felt that way. Do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted. See, he knew his past. He said, I didn't deserve the grace and mercy. That's what he's saying. I didn't deserve it. I persecuted the church of God. Look at verse 10. Here it is, ladies. Here it is. But the grace. You see, you can put your name right there. And, but I was this. But I did that. And then you get to that verse, and it says, but the grace of. It, it wipes the slate clean. But by the grace of God, Paul's saying, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Now, he's not saying he worked harder for the grace. That's not it at all. Yet not I, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Remember up above in verse 8, it says I, he, was, he, he describes himself as abnormally born. And when I kind of did a little bit of work on that this week, when you go back and look at that word abnormally born, and I love this, it says, when you go back to the, the definition, the in-depth look at that word in Greek, it says it was a word used for a life that was unable to sustain itself. Sort of used in the sense of a premature uh, miscarriage or a miscarriage or a premature you know, um, a death of a baby or an abortion. Used in those kind of sense of just helplessness, hopelessness. A word used for a life unable to sustain itself. You see, he knew that. Without the grace of God, he was living a life that could not sustain itself. But then when he was born again by the appearance of Christ to him, resurrected life took place. Your point number four is this. Paul used that expression, I am what I am because of the grace. We can look at every one of us in this room in verse point four of this on your teaching God. By the grace of God, James became what James became. You see, James, think about it. James could have been the one that said, you know what, I deserve. I'm his brother. I just think it's so God. He was a skeptic. He was an unbeliever. Mocked his brother. And it took the same grace. It took, requires the same grace for each and every individual to come individually to a personal Savior. Even his brother. Even his brother. And he knew by the grace of God he is. As Paul says, I am what I am. I can stand here today and say, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. And it requires daily grace. We're saved by grace, and then it is a process of learning to live in grace. Without effect, the Greek word, back looking into that verse, without effect, Greek kinos, or kainos, pronounced. It means empty, vain, ineffective, useless. 
The basic meaning of this word is empty, lacking content or hollow. In other words, what Paul was saying that when he experienced the grace of God, it didn't go in vain. That's what we want, ladies, in our lives. That we do not live a life saved by grace, now living it empty and hollow and in vain. The last point is this. The power of the resurrection means that nothing but the tomb is meant to be empty. The power of the resurrection means that nothing but the tomb is meant to be empty. What happens is we will feel like we've disappointed. We'll feel like we've denied. We'll feel like we've gotten to the place where we've gone too far. We'll feel like we want to drop out, drop back. Some of us even can kind of look at, at even our past and go, there's no way the grace of God can cover that. There's no way that the grace of God can cover right now. But what happens is when we in our human nature fail and we come to a God of mercy and a God of grace, it gives opportunity for God to fill us with his grace. Just remembering our past is to work for us, not against us. Our past is to work for us and not against us. If your past is working against you, we need to talk because the grace and mercy of God has not filled that place. We've got some traveling to go. and We've got some road to cover. And we're going to be incredibly different women when we finish this study. In the book of James, it talks about, when we get into that the second week, you're going to do homework this week, you will not even be in the book of James. Second week of the book of James, when we start in that, beautiful verse I want to pray over us as we conclude, and I'm going to send you on to small group. It's a beautiful verse that talks about being doers of the word. Doers of the word. Not just merely listening to the word. Not just listening, not just doing your homework, which is great, you do that homework. But not just doing your homework. The scripture, what James inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, become doers of the word. Now, doers of the word, I bet you there's a bunch of busy women in here. Anybody busy? I know a lot of you, and I know you're a bunch of doers. There's a lot of doers around these tables. It's not the kind of doing. We're going we're gonna to give, there's going to be a lot of opportunity of the doing through James. But one of the things I want to pray over this group is that we become doers of mercy and doers of grace. And if, you, if that just seems so like, what in the world? You're going to get it. You're going to get it. I'm going to get it. And I want to get it to a depth I've never understood before. So let's pray. And then I'm going to dismiss you by group and get, you, get, get us settled. Father God, we just thank you again. First of all, just humbly understanding grace. Just giving us a little bit of a glimpse at figures in Scripture covered by your grace, changed by your grace, 
transformed by your grace and then compelled by your grace. God, we too want to become doers of mercy and doers of grace. And I know when we ask that, when we, as we have our heads, hearts bowed to you, you will give us opportunity. You're going to start showing us opportunities, revealing to us opportunities to become doers of mercy and grace. Father, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all thanksgiving for a resurrected Savior full of grace and full of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.